This is a recording made in the chapel of the Opened Book and is number four of the series on the book of Joshua. It is our custom to read a portion of scripture together at this meeting and those of you who are joining us in this tape recording, if you care, will you read with us the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapters five and six. We have come now in this study of the book of Joshua across the Jordan and now the investing and taking of Jericho is before us. If you look at the chapter 6 of Joshua, you will see that it is prefaced by a vision and it is followed by a dreadful uh, betrayal. We'll We'll look at that, shall we, for a moment. Joshua 5. Verse 13, And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us, or for our adversaries? And he said, But as captain of the host of the Lord have I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now friends, that is the preface to all the destruction that goes on in Jericho and onwards. Whatever you do, take the book as a whole. Don't listen to the person who says, oh, I can't believe the Bible to be true because Joshua or somebody else was sent out to destroy so many people. Before ever that took place, God has got a representative here. And the emphasis is holiness. You see, we look at things in bits and pieces, small verses and small chapters. Even if we could get a conspectus of the whole Bible in our mind, we shouldn't see it as God sees it. I think I'm right in saying that since the days that Adam was created, there never has been peace on earth yet. You and I have been born into a world where war was on, and when we finish, until the Lord comes, war will still be here. It doesn't matter whether armies are engaged or whether they're firing at one another. There never has been, and never has been known, what peace on earth can mean. Even the believer is not exempt. We read just now in 2 Corinthians, the apostle went on giving a list of distresses and sufferings that the believer was going through. They're not exempt. And so, when we look at these Old Testament things, we'll have to think, oh, I don't know. Uh, That's a bit savage, isn't it? I have a feeling, friends, if you could get one of your uh, special uh, accountants who work out statistics, or I know the thing that's said about it, and I think it's true to a large extent, but I mustn't repeat it because my words are being recorded. Um, I think you would find that you and I have lived through a period where more people were massacred and destroyed in one war than the whole of the campaigns that are recorded in the Old Testament. You've got to be very careful, lest you begin to think, that these things could never happen if God be God. If we get God's point of view right back away from this world, 
right back before man is here, there is a conflict between right and wrong, night and darkness, holiness and wickedness. A man came into the scene and he was tempted and fell, but the war still went on. And God himself took the responsibility to say, and I will put enmity between the two seeds. And you and I cannot alter it if we should wish. And the enmity between those two seeds is epitomized by the opposition that was there right from the time of Abraham, the Canaanite. For he represents the evil seed. And that war is going on still. Because the evil seed includes the principalities and powers that are antagonistic that were spoiled by Christ when he led captivity captive. So we first of all realize that holiness, this one was holy who had a drawn sword, and Joshua was under his command. This was not sacking a city and looting it. This was a devoted city because of its wickedness by the God who is holy. We've got to remember that. And if we weren't redeemed, we should be in the same plight ourselves. For the New Testament which tells us that God is love, also says this, and it's so often never quoted, for our God is a consuming fire. That's just as true as God so loved the world. The next thing is we have the bulk of the story in chapter 6, and the way in which this city was taken. And then it is followed in chapter 7 by these words. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. So on one side there's a holy being, on the other side there's someone who commits a trespass and involves the whole thing in defeat and trouble. In chapter 6 we have victory. In chapter 7 it goes on to speak about defeat. You might glimpse at that. Uh, but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, for Achan, the son of Kami, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite I, and make not all the people to labour, for they are but few. Oh, they were boasting, they were going to do it with just a handful. So they went up thither, the people, about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of I, they were beaten. Why was that? Not because they hadn't got weapons, not because they hadn't got the strength, but because this is a war of holiness. And they defeated themselves before the men of I defeated them by the failure to recognize that they were a crusade. And Achan, by his covetousness and by taking the Babylonian garment and involved the whole thing again. So you see, it's possible that somebody said to themselves in this meeting, I wonder why he chose that passage to read in 2 Corinthians. I wonder why we sang separated to the Father. You say, you don't wonder, do you? Because it wasn't the arms that these people had. There's never been an investment of a city since the days of Joshua 
that had such a peculiar artillery. They just walked around seven times and blew little trumpets. Not by my, nor by my, my power, said the Lord, but by my spirit. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. This was God at work. No man in his senses would have tried to attack a walled city in those days by blowing trumpets seven times. And I dare say the children of Israel felt a little bit peculiar sometimes. What, a, what an exhibition we're making of ourselves. Look at them looking over the wall at us. That's what they were told to do. Not a word about swords or spears or bows and arrows or anything. Just take the ark, have the priests, the men at arms walking in front, and then they blew trumpets. And you may remember that there are two kinds of trumpets in the scriptures. There is the silver trumpet, and that gives a fairly good sound, and that gathers people together for war. Well, you say, I suppose they were all blowing around their silver trumpets. No, not a bit of it. No, no. They had what is called the Jubilee trumpet. The yo-bell. A ram's horn. And if you've ever heard it, oh, it's a funny little squeak. Just a little squeak. That's all. This was an exhibition, this wasn't a war that was being conducted by someone who was superior in arms. It was a war that was being conducted by God against the evil inhabitants of the land of promise so that there should be no compromise between his people and they. Do remember that when Abraham was called by God out of the Chaldees, he was stayed for a time by the interference of his father and then the significant words are and the Canaanite was then in the land when he got there. The evil one saw that that land was being segregated by God for that people and the Hesitation on the part of Tirah and Abraham with him gave the opportunity. And when they got to the land of promise, swarming with Canaanites. Well, God had given it to Abraham. And these had never ought to have been there. Consequently, to possess their possessions, they had to take arms against them and reduce them. So that's what we're up against. And then you see there are lessons for ourselves coming out of this. The weapons that we have to use are not the weapons that are recognised by military. We may be as idiotic in the eyes of some people with our feeble methods as blowing little trumpets around a walled city. But the biggest danger, friends, is not there. The biggest danger is from within. Joshua and his people were defeated by someone inside the camp, not outside. And the Apostle Paul has left on record that it will still go on he said, I know that after my departure, grievous wolves should enter in, not sparing the flock. Goes on all the time. And so sometimes you have to be a bit more on your guard than you think you ought to be. A little bit more severe than perhaps you would like to be. Because there's great truth in that proverb that comes all the way from the east. Of the camel in the raging storm of dust that was outside. He just argued with the Arab and said, oh, well, oh, let me just put my nose in the tent. Only just my nose. Well, the Arab couldn't very well say no. The hump was outside still. Well, then if he got his nose in, he'd have to put his whole head in because he couldn't see. And then he got his neck in and, of course, of his right in, you see. That's what happens. That's what happens. And so we've got this tragic story before us. Well now, let's we look at chapter 6 of Joshua a little bit more intimately.
Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out. None came in. And remember, Jericho was not a desert. It is called elsewhere a city of palm trees. It was rather a coveted spot. And I'm speaking from memory, I think Cleopatra had some interests in plantations in Jericho in her day and other times. So the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto thine hand Jericho. I have done so. Later on, he turned it the other way around. He said, I have given the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile. I have done so. And Nebuchadnezzar had sense enough at last to recognize that he disposes it. Heavens do rule. He gives it to whomsoever he will. And God says, now I've done this. Jericho is a devoted city. It's on the very frontier. You've crossed the Jordan. And if that city remains there behind your back, you'll never, you'll never possess your possessions. And there may be truth in that for ourselves too. And so we've got this frontier city that has to be reduced. And he then told them, he shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shall they do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. So there it is, this, this wonderful procession. I suppose you're realising that the link between the ram's horn trumpet which is called the Yobel, and the Yobelie, or the Jubilee, is involved here. You see, the going round seven times, and the blowing seven times, is emphasising the seven times seven of the Jubilee. And then you remember that the whole Bible is constructed on that scheme. The six days creation with the seventh day rest started at that day. The Feast of Weeks that come between Easter and Pentecost are seven. The festival year of Israel is seven months and the rest of the year is just empty till the first month comes again. Seven. And then the Jubilee is, oh, then uh, there is the seven Sabbaths. Then there is the Jubilee, the seven times seven. And then there is Daniel's great prophecy of seventy times seven. And there are some who think that as we are nearing the end of 6,000 years from the time of Adam, according to the record in the scripture, God has nearly finished his week. And we do know one day is coming, which is a thousand years, that's the millennium, and it all fits. The whole Bible is constructed on a jubilee basis. I'm tempted, but I wouldn't like to say jubilee, because that would be wrong, wouldn't it? And here we have this little figure. Here's this great opposition to the entry into that land. And it's all reduced like that by simply a symbol that looks toward the end of the age. When you come to the book of the Revelation, you read, and the seventh angel sounded, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And in the book of the Revelation, great Babylon comes into judgment. And the kings of the earth and the the mighty traffickers, they all weep and wail because of the great city. Oh, they're sorry that it's going. But not the angels. They start saying hallelujah for the first time. And so you see, from Genesis, right through to the last book in the Bible, there's a war on. And if you were to sit down and consistently read all the horrors 
of judgments that God has said he's going to send upon this earth, you'd suffer a nightmare, and yet it's all in the book. Doesn't hesitate. When the time comes for the coming of Christ to return, it's likened to a stone cut out without hands that falls upon the image of Gentile dominion, smashes it to powder, it's blown away like straw from a threshing floor. That's what God's going to do with what we call civilization. No good arguing about it. You either believe it or you don't, but it's still there. And all these are just pictures in a small way. When you get to the the, the time that Peter looks forward to. Oh, he said, it's going to dissolve and the heavens pass by the scroll. It's going to be fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth. So it's there, friends. You might like to test this question about the trumpets as I just passed the word just, just now. Num- numbers of the 10th chapter, just in order to get chapter and verse for some of these features, Numbers the 10th chapter gives you this reference to these particular type of trumpets. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes and the heads of the thousands of Israel shall gather themselves to thee. And when ye blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on east part shall go forward. And so on, giving instruction. You see, the apostle meant what he said. If the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, you don't know whether it's a committee that's going to be, or going to meet an enemy, or watches it. And oh, what a difficulty it is now sometimes to distinguish what the message is that's being given. But no difficulty here. Certain blasts of the silver trumpets meant certain things. But then we get the other trumpet, which we call the Yobel, or the Jubilee trumpet. The first occurrence is found in Exodus, where we have the trumpet sounding on Mount Sinai. And then we have the 25th chapter of Leviticus, where this Jubilee is given in some measure of detail. 25th chapter of Leviticus. It says in verse 8, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. And that's one of the passages you, you could refer to when you're dealing with Daniel's prophecy. Because some people may say, Well, you don't use the word Sabbath as a mere number seven. No, we don't. But the Hebrews did. And so here, a seven sevens or seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. Seven times seven years, I point out that it's done for you. If you don't know how to reckon that up, you see, it's done for you. No arguing. And the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. So that's done for you. You can't avoid it, can you? Then shalt thou cause the jubilee, the trumpet of the jubilee, to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty. Well, there's the jubilee. And it's to do with the atonement. And they're going round the walls of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on the top and the jubilee trumpet which is sounded on the Day of Atonement. That's the battle that's on. And that is the way in which it is waged. 
Now there's one thing that's said about the uh, destruction of this city, showing you it wasn't merely a savage loot. It was a crusade. Uh, first of all, I want to remind you that there's one other feature before we leave this going round. That the Apostle says, Joshua says rather in verse 10 and Joshua had commanded the people saying ye shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout then shall ye shout now have it come to your mind yet friends the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout says so and it says at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, he takes the kingdom. All these things you see are in the type. The sounding of the trumpet and the shout before that city collapses. Well then we find that this city is devoted. Our version says of being accursed. Will you come to verse 18? And ye shall in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing. Lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Then in the next verse, But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. Or as the version in the margin puts it, They are holiness unto the Lord. Now, this word cursed is the word that also means to be devoted. Shall we look now back again to Leviticus, this time chapter 27, to get a little hint of this. Leviticus 27. And uh, verse 31. 27, 21. It is but the field when it goeth out in the jubilee shall be holy unto the Lord as a field devoted. Devoted. And in verses 28 and 29. Notwithstanding no devoted thing that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath both of man and beast, and of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. None devoted, which shall be devoted of men, shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. Extraordinary laws, that's in operation here. This city, God says, is devoted. Not in the sense that it was holy, but it was entirely under the control of God. And these people were just his agents. And consequently they were warned. Uh, I think I'll give you another verse to look at before we get to the passage. Deuteronomy 13. Where we get the word to cleave unto their hands. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 15. It says, Thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, 
and destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword, and thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shalt burn with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof every whit, for the Lord thy God in it shall be an heap forever, it shall not be built again. And there shall, there shall cleave not to the accursed thing to thine hand. Not cleave to thine hand. Dreadful commands, aren't they? This is long before Jericho. This is what God says has got to be done with these things. Because of their utter abomination of wickedness that they were spreading throughout the earth. In the book of the Revelation it says that Babylon is the harlot mother of all the abominations of the earth. We don't understand what it must be like in the eyes of a holy God. We're those so tangled and mixed up with it ourselves. But here it is. Well now, this statement about not building the place again is also echoed in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. And Joshua adjured them. This is a very solemn word. Joshua adjured them, saying, at that time, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. Well, whether we understand it or like it or not, you see, there's something very dreadful about this city and all these people that are there. And there's a lesson, I think, in the steps that are suggested that lead to this. So I'm going to, first of all, ask you to look one more passage. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, 3. Deuteronomy 34, 3 is the first reference to Jericho. Moses is not able to enter the land, you remember? But he goes up to a mountain in Nebo at Pisgah and he's looked over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead and Dan. And in verse 3, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees unto Zoah. And that is one of the alternative names of Jericho the city of palm trees. Rather a delightful place to look at. And then if you look at Young's Concordance, he suggests that the word Jericho means fragrance. Fragrance. And there's a possibility that it means the idea of false incense and false worship, everything that's satisfying to the eye but not to the heart. Here it is. Can easily be a snare, you see. Well, that's the first reference. Well, now, if you look at the book of Judges, you'll see the next step that was taken. Judges, chapter 1, verse 16. Remember what has been said about this Jericho and what these people had witnessed. Judges 1, 16. And the children of the, the, children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south of Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. Well, there is a movement there. The city of palm trees again mentioned. Well, now we find that um, they're mixing with them. Chapter 3 of Judges. 
12, 3, 12, and 13. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. That's Jericho. And then, notice that this is a very, very solemn little piece coming next. 2 Samuel, chapter 10. We are to be kind and sympathetic. But there can sometimes be a kindness which is a betrayal of truth. 2 Samuel 10. And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died. And Hanan his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto thee. And David said, To comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honour thy father, and that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city, and spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, therefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to the buttocks, and sent them away. And when they told it unto David, he said to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. Strange story, isn't it? That's Jericho. That's the reaction to a bit of kindness. And then if you go a bit further, you remember Saul was told about the destruction of the all the people of, of the Agag and all his possessions. And Samuel said, you haven't done what the Lord told you. Oh, he said, I'll only just, only just, you know, like that, see, just spared. And you think, well, Saul was a bit more kind than Samuel. He spared Agag. Now go to the book of Esther. And Haman is the Agagite. And he, if it had his will, would have exterminated the whole of Israel. If it hadn't been for the interposition of God, Mordecai and Esther. Saul, with his kindness, spared the man whose, whose descendants plotted to destroy the whole of his people. You could be so kind that you're cutting the throats of people instead of saving anybody. Here it is again, you see. And then, in uh, 1 Kings 16.34, we get somebody rebuilding Jericho, and the thing is just stated without any comment that what was said to take place did. This is 1 Kings 16.34. In his days, now if you want to know what the days were like, you want to look back. Oh, there's, there's a grove and worshipping of Baal and I don't know what. In his days did heal the Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Sega, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. That's all it says. So there was an attempt to defy God, to resurrect this thing again, and that's what happened. Now you may say to me, but then there was Jericho in the days of our Lord. 
Yes, it wasn't the same Jericho, it was in the vicinity, but there was another town built. The new Jericho was not a resurrection of the old, that was left as a heap. Well, these things were there apparently for a witness and an example, so that there should be no communion, as it were, between light and darkness. What fellowship hath Belial and the believer? What fellowship is there between light and darkness? Well, you read the passage, didn't we? And so, this is being stressed. Now we come to the cause of the defeat. And his name is Achan. A-C-H-A-N. But in the um, book of Chronicles, where he gives of his name, it is A-C-H-E-R. And in this very same record in Joshua, chapter 7, the last verse, And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor. Not Achan. And I suppose you know, and if you've got a Bible with the Hebrew alphabet written over the different stanzas of Psalm 119, you see that the letter N and the letter R are the same shape, only the letter R is a little bit longer. If I draw it in the air, that's the letter N and that's the letter R. See the difference? Just like that and like that. So in in one historic book it speaks of Edom and the same people are called Aram because the D goes a bit, or I'll have it backwards for your benefit. The D goes for a bit and the other goes right round. Hebrews backward to me, then I did it backward to you so that you wouldn't be tangled up with it. I hope you can see. But here it is. Now, this is the point. The word acre means troubler. And that's the very word Joshua said to him. You've troubled, you've brought trouble into Israel. Sixth chapter, the 18th verse. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing. We read that, didn't we? And this man is the one that brought trouble into Israel. And the point, I think, is that this word is transferred over to uh, the New Testament. But wait a minute, chapter 7, I think we get the word again. Yes. And Joshua said, this is verse 25, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee. He had troubled them. And there were men whose lives had gone because of the greed, the transgression, not leaving it all as a devoted thing, taking some for himself. Now the next thing is this. One of the words which are used here are when it says that this um, Achan, he took of the accursed thing The very word is repeated in the Acts of the Apostles, now I'm referring of course to the Greek version, when Peter challenged Ananias and Sapphira and said, why hast thou kept back, or does it say in the record, that he kept back a part of the price thereof? And what happened to those two? So deadly was it at the beginning of the early church for this thing to start that they were stricken with death, both of them, man and wife. 
seems terrible to us, doesn't it? Yet that's after Pentecost, that's after Christ had come, that's in the act of the apostles at the beginning of the Christian era. It's a solemn subject, isn't it? There's no trifling with God. We are so concerned about the grace of God, and the love of God, and the mercy of God, which is wonderful. And the very same Bible that teaches the one teaches the other. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And it's no good us picking and choosing some of our better believe what I prefer because that's nonsense. That's deluding itself. And I think we've got to realise that these things have been written to give us a little warning. Not that we're going out doing the self-same things, but it teaches us that this warfare is not merely the battles that men engage in. But the battle is a deeper significance altogether. It's a matter of life and death with regard to the things of the Spirit. And the very last chapter of Joshua, when the, the work is all over and the land's divided, he calls upon them like this. In the last chapter of Joshua. Verse 14, Now therefore, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. That was the trouble, you see. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And each one of us in some measure have got to make up our mind with regard to this. Who is on the Lord's side, said Joshua, unto me? And the Christ still goes out to you and to me. The war isn't finished yet, friends. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but the war is on. And the epistle to the Ephesians has provided us with the spiritual equivalent of a complete armour, not only the defensive shield of faith, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's not given us to march about with a sort of decoration. It's a weapon. And there's a war on still. And it will go on until the book of the Revelation and other prophets which speak of the time of the end shall be fulfilled. But isn't it good to know that it will come. That the seventh angel will sound. And the greater than Jericho will fall. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign. Of course, the back of all this we say, why did God allow it? I don't know, friends, isn't that marvellous? I don't know. We've got to be realists in this and say we're in it. Whether we can explain it or not. We're surrounded by it. The enmity is everywhere expressed against the things that make for peace, righteousness, holiness, and truth. And until that is settled, there will always be this character and we shall have to look at some of these types and say, well, that's only warning us of the times which we're waiting for. I was speaking just now about the word trouble. And Paul, in his first epistle written to the Galatians, he said, there's someone troubling you and he's preaching another gospel that's the troubler he's the one who introduces another gospel 
and another Jesus, and another spirit that you have not received. And later on in Galatians he said, a little leaven leaveneth the whole up. He that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be, a troubler. And then later on in the same epistle, he says, ye which are spiritual, restore the one who's got into trouble. You be a restorer. Friends, what would you prefer to be in a meeting or meetings? A troubler or a restorer? Well, it's easy to be a troubler, friends. So let us read some of these Old Testament types and not think we are quite above them. We may not do what Achan did, literally. Take a Babylonish garment and a wedge of silver and hide it in our tent. We may do the same thing from a spiritual point of view. And by so doing, hinder the very work we may love and wish to further, because these things are insidious. And there's a spiritual foe that's more than our match. So let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on the armour of light, and then stand. Remembering that Joshua, before ever he started his campaign, took his shoes off his feet, for the ground on which he stood was holy. And so this characterises all the strange things that happened in that dreadful campaign. Of course, we come to the conclusion when we've done Joshua that it's a poor, frail people. They don't go through with it as they should, but we don't sit in judgment too harshly on them because neither have we lived any way near to the heights that would be expected of us who boast that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, raised together and seated with him. Somebody says, go on, you wouldn't. Tell me much more. You see, that's, that's strange, isn't it? That's all our calling. So here we walk humbly with our God and realise what a need there is for these Old Testament stories to sometimes take the veil away from our eyes and see the matter as it stands in the presence of a holy God. Then I finish by reminding you how in Philippians, in the third chapter, the Apostle says, always says, look upon those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. So there again, retranslated into New Testament terms, we can have the story of Joshua and the man with a drawn sword and the Achan who betrayed them all, repeating themselves over and over again.